0: Welcome to the Form IPLJ Podcast. I am your online editor and host, Patrick Ho. Today's episode will be part two of the FormIPLJ IPLJ Symposium held in September. The Data Governments Regimes panel will discuss the challenges in maintaining the privacy and confidentiality of data as it continues to accumulate. Our panelists will evaluate current compliance obligations and the effectiveness of the FTC in providing standardized frameworks for effective governance. Panelists will also review recommendations for and against more expansive federal and state privacy legislation. Our moderator will be Olivier Sylvain, Professor of Law at Fordham University School of Law. And our panelists will be Lisa Soto, Partner and Chair of the Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Hunton Andrews & Kirth. Boris Agalis, Partner and Global Vice Chair of Cyber Data Privacy at Cooley. Andrew Koppelman, Vice President, Assistant General Counsel and Chief Privacy Counsel at Metadata Solutions. And Anthony Ford, Senior Data Privacy Counsel at Metadata Solutions. I hope you enjoyed the episode.
1: our next panel, the Data Governance Regimes panel, and our moderator, Professor Olivier Sylvain from Fordham Law School.
2: Thank you, Chloe, and uh, thank you to the IPLJ for putting together a fantastic program. The first panel's discussion set the stage um, and lays out some of the important considerations many of us... Have been paying attention to, and that in particular, is user control and skepticism about user control. What we're going to do in this panel is, um, as set out by the IPLJ, talk about governance of data. and And for this, I think we have to push the curtain aside and see what's going on in the market, right? Well, how are stakeholders attending to the requirements set out in public law um, generally? and And in today's day and world, where Data travels with the speed of light in support of transnational trade and commerce, and people need to do business um, and engage in transactions of all kinds. Uh, It's sometimes a whirlwind to think that the public laws articulated is enough to understand what happens. And so when we talk about governance, I hope you all appreciate that we're not just talking about the GDPR, although we'll spend a lot of time talking about that, or California statute or as you'll hear, the Privacy Shield, but also how businesses transact with each other, in my in light in, in light of this of this um, public law background, and we have just a, a wonderful um, set of speakers on this panel to talk about this. Contrast from the last one: no academics except for me. Although all of these folks can definitely can definitely hold their own. So. Uh, I'm not going to do a lot by way of um, introducing the biographies, you, you, can, you can see those biographies in the program, um, but I will tell you a little, I'll tell you where they are. So Lisa Soto sitting next to me um, is at Huntington Williams, Boris Segalis at Cooley, and a tag team um, from Metadata, a firm that does, among other things, um, support clinical trials in data analytics. Uh, Andrew. Koppelman and Anthony Ford in that order. And we have some structure to the discussion, but this will be a contrast from the first panel in that there won't be any presentations. I'll ask questions and the panelists will go at it. They have seen the questions, (laughs) but I don't know what they're gonna say. Um, So that's what's most interesting about this. And towards the end of the session, we of course will leave time for thoughtful questions from the audience. So to get started, this is open to everyone. But I'm gonna first ask it to Boris, what is data governance? Hi
3: everyone, uh, it's it's great to be here. Um, so the I, w- I was trying to think about uh, what data governance might mean to you, and it probably means different things to different audiences, and we'll try to be, maybe in a way, practical here. The, the first part of it is, when we talk about data governance, we're talking about, on this panel at least, personal data. And, Personal data, that term can have a million different definitions. In fact, it's defined differently in different US laws and uh, different laws globally. But uh, if we think about it in kind of the broadest sense, which is the latest approach, whether it's in the GDPR or the California law, it's really any information that um, identifies an individual, allows someone to contact an individual, or identifies a device connected to the internet, which can be a car, um, your phone, can also be information that is about your household. So when we talk about personal information, it's important not to think about it as someone who needs to know that you know, I'm Boris Segalis and I or I even have my name or have my email address. It can be enough for someone to handle information that allows them to display an ad to me on my computer. That would be the cookie information, whatever happens in the background can be personal. So then we're talking about data governance. Um, you can think about it in, in several ways. And, You can talk about data governance as records management. We're not going to be talking about that here. But um, data governance, the way we think about it, I would say has three elements. You can think about it this way. One is the protection of the data, which is kind of the information security angle. How do you protect the data with your typical administrative, technical, and physical safeguards? So you need to know where the data is. You need to protect it. You need to comply with laws, industry standards, and contractual requirements, and other things. The other is pure compliance. Let's say if some law prohibits disclosure of data to third parties or requires you to offer some sort of a choice or opt-out, opt-in to consumers, compliance with those laws can be thought of data governance. I think the most uh, interesting part of data governance is really kind of the third part, which is leveraging all of that to establish rights to data. Because if you think about sort of the digital economy and how it's, when we say like it's driven by data, what does it really mean? It means that a lot of companies, nonprofits, leverage data for some sort of purposes, for clinical trial research, for advertising, for background checks, you name it. So navigating these laws and requirements and consumer expectations to establish data rights, in a way, and to operate within those parameters is what I think about sort of the most interesting part of uh, data governance.
2: Lisa?
4: Horace is very practical. I'm going to be a little more um, academic in my response. So we have um, now well over 100 uh, data protection laws, comprehensive data protection laws globally. Um, we have a complete cacophony, um, an unmelodious cacophony, uh, of data protection laws around the world. It is virtually impossible for any any organization to actually comply with all of them and 100%, impossible. So what do you do? You put in place a data governance regime within your company. Um, You you need to think about essentially flying high because if you fly low, you hit buildings. So if you fly higher and you create um, a structure within your company, a framework for handling data that is responsible um, and you're a responsible data steward pulling elements, basic elements, and there are very many basic elements in all of these laws, um, and creating your own uh, global structure um, within your company. I think um, that's probably the best way of describing uh, data governance because it, it really becomes an impossible exercise. We had um, a very interesting project uh, in the office over the course of the last year. We, we assisted a, um, an entity that's subject to no laws, zero laws. Um, it's a, it's a, uh, I don't know how to describe it without uh, revealing the name. It's a global um, international organization. And they came to us and said, we're subject to nothing. And in fact, they can't comply with any particular law because if they do comply with any particular law, the other countries get mad um, because this is a global organization. So we pulled um, from 20, 30 years of privacy jurisprudence to pull the Principles, the basic principles, and created a framework, and that's that's how I think of data governance in its purest form.
2: Um, you've piqued our interest, Lisa, but I, I guess we're not going to we're not <laughs> going to push the question. Um, it might be nice uh, before we hear more from other panelists if you can identify what some of those principles are in broad sketch, if you don't mind.
4: So you know, when you look at the GDPR, uh, for example, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, you see a lot of those principles. We see a lot of newer principles that are not embedded in many of the global laws. Um, for example, the, the right of erasure is not in lots of uh, the global laws, the right to be forgotten. But basic principles, transparency, notice and choice. Notice and consent is, is, a, you know, is just bedrock in just about every data protection law. The right to access your own data, to see what an entity has about you, uh, and to ask that that data be revised, changed, amended, if it's not accurate, for example. The right to have your data secure, to make sure that the entity whom you, that you've entrusted with your data is actually um, uh, keeping the data safeguarded and secure. Uh, and then there needs to be, of course, an enforcement regime because it, without enforcement of some sort, um, all of this is for naught. So uh, those are those are the, some of the very basic principles. There are there are others, but I think you know if we think about notice, choice, access, security, enforcement, that gives you a, a good um, framework with,
2: within which to work. And, and a follow up again, I'm sorry, Boris, are you gonna jump in?
3: Yeah, I, I was, um, you know, I think that's uh, one way to think about data governance and what you're trying to accomplish and kind of looking at it as a common denominator exercise and uh, it has its place. I'm just, I was uh, trying to think of um, with, and the GDPR, which is the European General Data Protection Regulation, I think Lisa's gonna be talking more about it. It introduced very onerous requirements into kind of the data stream and maybe there, are, it's kind of a delta from the previous, uh, uh, from the European Data Protection Directive, but there's more compliance or whatever. When, when that happens and you think about data governance, let's, say, let's take a simple example. Let's say, let's say uh, data governance for employee data. Pretty boring, right? So let's say you have employees in Europe and employers in the United States. Like employees in Europe have certain expectations about privacy in the workplace. Employees in the United States have zero, essentially not zero, but they can be monitored, whatever, freely. So when you're designing your data governance uh, program, you have to consider these different um, jurisdictions and different expectations and build a governance based on that, so this, this one example, right, where if you're in a global organization, you wouldn't want to offer employees in the United States those rights. Or if you're a marketing organization and you operate globally, same thing. If you're operating in Europe, there are new burdensome requirements on marketing. In the United States, it's, uh, I don't wanna call it a free-for-all, but it's much more open and relaxed. You wouldn't wanna affect your business or um, d- diminish your business opportunities by following that framework. So sometimes, it's custom-based. Sometimes you have to, or many times, you have to first look at the business, see what the business is trying to accomplish, whether it's compliance or data rights, and build out the framework from that. And, and uh, you know, so my approach in advising clients Um, is never to really suggest that they do something out of the goodness of their heart, if that makes sense. You know, whether it's uh, talk to a regulator or take on some obligations that they shouldn't take because uh, it's rife with examples when uh, this data governance take into an extreme, it results in uh, pain on the back end, like one quick example. There's these things called BCR, binding corporate rules, which a company can adopt. Uh, They're very restrictive and it allows the company to transfer data from Europe to the United States for, uh, you know, without having additional contracts or certifying to the privacy or whatever. There's an option to apply those rules to transfers of data from Europe to the uh, United States. But in the guidance, says you can also tell us companies, you can also adopt it globally. And before the GDPR, some company said, Oh, it's a good idea. It seems like great, you know, great principles. We, you know, we'll get good publicity. And they did that. And moving on, as they developed their data operations, ran into major problems when they try to apply it to, let's say, data transferred from Canada to the United States. When you're trying to deal with business partners in Canada and trying to put stuff in the contracts about European controllership or processorship, whatever, and they have no idea and becomes an impediment to doing business. So data governance is tricky. I mean, as Lisa said, there are many laws that in different countries and you have to be able to navigate them as they uh, kind of interact with the business opportunities or other compliance considerations that you're trying to pursue.
2: I think this point is, is really important and the, the notion of contingency and context and the particular needs of the client or whatever the in company is. Uh, and we have here a company with its own particular set of priorities and concerns. Uh, So it'd be nice to hear from you all. I mean, when we talk about data governance, uh, what does it mean to metadata?
5: Sure, hi everybody, Andrew Kopelman. I want to thank IPLJ. Thank you, Melissa, Aziz, for inviting us. I just want to spend a moment saying what metadata solutions is. Anthony and I are the privacy attorneys for metadata because I think it's really gonna inform everything Boris and Lisa said. Metadata Solutions is a 20 year old company. We're publicly traded and nobody in this room has probably ever heard of us. That's because we're business to business. Our customers are the life sciences companies that conduct clinical trials. We recently acquired a company that does basically commercial marketing for the same life sciences companies but leaving that aside, all we do is support life sciences companies in running their clinical trials. It's very complex, it obviously involves not just personal data, but sensitive personal data. So I give all this background as a context where our cloud provider, we're not creating custom software, that will be important to keep in mind. And we are strictly a processor for those regimes that have controller processor distinction. That is to say, our customers are supposed to determine the purpose and means of our processing.
2: And we will unpack this term processor in a minute when Lisa and Boris talk about the governing law.
5: Just to answer the question of what is data governance to us or to start answering it, actually, it is bigger than just the processing of personal data. Data governance to us is having full accountability for our customers' data, whether it's personal data or not. Um, It is, and we could talk a great deal of brass tacks about it, but I do want to just mention in terms of what Lisa and Boris said, because of the huge amount of laws out there, when we put in place our first formal data governance policy, procedures, and controls, we had to do it in a way that we weren't just tying it to the GDPR or the couple other laws that we knew applied to us or that applied to our customers. Um, I looked around for a template. I didn't really find one that fit. I looked through ACC's website and their resources and IAPP's. we went back to the principles. We looked at the principles that really came from information governance, which is I think an older body and we came together with these principles and then we decided in terms of all of our processes, what we do for our customers, how could we account for where is your data, what are we doing with it, how are we doing it um, ahead of time? So that's that's high level.
1: Yeah, to, to add to that in terms of sort of what a program for data governance inside of a large company looks like. So let's say we have a legal requirement, I think Lisa's point is very sound here. There are many legal requirements, it's impossible to comply with all of them but you've gotta create some sort of entry point for these requirements as they become salient to you. So let's say you have a patient in a clinical trial. They want the access to their records, they live in Germany, they have that right under the GDPR, they come to us, they send a letter, it's on like a lawyer's letterhead and we're all kind of scared for a second, right? If you don't have a data governance regime, what you're left with is you know, a, a collection of thousands of virtual machines on Amazon and wondering what data is in each and what are you gonna do about this request? And you only have a month to respond, the clock is ticking, we're processing that data on behalf of some particular customer, we're not even sure who. So what, the, what a data governance regime does for us, it gives, gives us the ability to figure out what data is where, what are we using it for, who has access, how many copies are we allowed to keep? where like, Where are those copies? Are those copies kept at the same level of security? Or are there some copies we're allowing at different levels of security? Those kinds of questions that sort of insight about your own data handling practices give you the ability to comply with these different regimes. And if you were to say, Yes, um, patient, um, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Doe, uh, we have your data. We have thirteen copies. Two of them are on a thumb drive. Like I lost one behind my dresser the other day, um, but we'll do our very best to give you access to it. Right? I mean, that's not a very good answer. So, what a data governance regime gives a company like ours the ability to do is to have a disciplined, accountable response to our our customers, these major life science companies you know, spending millions of dollars on medicine, but also on the everyday people whose rights are granted to them under these different data protection laws.
2: Um, this is a, a very important point, and it underscores uh, what I said at the outset, um, what I mutedly said at the outset, and that there are incentives on the part of firms to attend to data protection, uh, and the implementation of, of measures to do so, quite apart from what public law sets out although you know we can talk more about it but let's start with prevailing the the dominant way of thinking about data protection these days uh, for transnational companies especially companies doing business in Europe and that is the general data protection regulation so it's a start right we have we also have to talk about the the private ordering uh, uh, that's at work but we have this public law um, Lisa um, can you give us we, we've heard a little bit about it this morning you can say a little bit more about the GDPR
4: Oh, the GDPR, um, we could spend three or four days on it.
2: We've got about an hour.
4: We're gonna, do, we're gonna do it in three minutes. The General Data Protection Regulation followed about four years of discussion. In 1995, the EU Data Protection Directive <clears throat> came into existence and the directive, um, for the first time, uh, said in its preamble that privacy, data protection, I think it says privacy actually, is a fundamental human right. So that is a that that really changed everything um, in the data protection world. We we after of course you know that was the mainframe era. We have moved um, significantly forward, and there was a the crying need to revamp the directive, um, and that's what the four years of negotiation was all about. And we got to the General Data Protection Regulation, and, and I'll just note that globally now. We have three buckets of laws. We have the GDPR, which is now being mimicked in some countries, like Brazil just passed a new law, and it is GDPR-like. We have laws that mimic the old data protection directive in many, many countries, so that's bucket two. And then the third bucket is our own regime in the United States, which is a sectoral regime for privacy, meaning we regulate by industry sector. We regulate health privacy, With HIPAA, we regulate financial privacy with the gramm leach bliley Act. We uh, we regulate uh, consumer reports with the Fair Credit Reporting Act. We regulate kids' data collected online with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, and the list goes on. Um, So we have these three buckets of laws. The GDPR um, is absolutely at the forefront at the moment. Um, So very quickly, some of its principles and I'll just do overarching themes because to go through it all uh, would take too long. Overarching theme number one is harmonization. So the idea was a a directive needs to be uh, transposed into local law by each of the member states. So a directive actually can have laws in each of the 28 member states that differ slightly from each other with the directive as baseline. As a regulation, general data protection regulation, it's one law and it is uh, applicable to all 28 member states as is. So harmonizing the regime was very important. We now have a concept of one stop shop, which means that if you are primarily based and and focused on a particular country, you can choose that data protection authority, uh, that supervisory authority in that country as your uh, one stop shop regulator. Um, second sort of big theme is we have enhanced obligations under the GDPR. So, for example, um, transparency, and this, this, again, transcends all the, the transparency, notice, and consent transcends all data protection laws. Um, there is a, a very rigid um, notice requirement under the GDPR, and there's a, there's a real prescriptive standard as to what needs to go into a notice. You need to get consent regime and it's hard to get consent so we actually try to avoid it and we use other bases of processing instead of consent. But getting consent is hard um, and there's a there's a very prescriptive regime for that. There is a, for the first time in all of Europe, a breach notification obligation. There were some member states that had laws in place prior uh, to the GDPR but now we see a breach notification obligation in all 28 member states and of course um, everybody's heard about the 72 hour notice requirement which really does stink. <laughs> it's really hard to, uh, to to meet that period. We have obligations in vendor contracts, and these guys can tell you about the pain that they, they have suffered uh, in dealing with those vendor contracts, but there are very specific requirements that need to go into data processor contracts, vendors, essentially vendors. There are requirements now for some companies to have a data protection officer in place, uh, also requirements to do data protection impact assessments for some companies.
2: One thing I want to ask, you said processor. There are categories of entity that are, that are repeated from the data directive that are, you know, the language that privacy specialists have been attending to. One of them is data processor. The other one is data controller, and we got data subject. Maybe say a word or two about that, and I'd like to bring Boris in to talk a little bit about Absolutely, this
4: well. A data controller is the entity that determines the purposes and the means of the data processing. So essentially, uh, the the one who makes the decisions with respect to the data. And data processing, by the way, is absolutely everything you do with data. If you leave data on a table, that's processing data, because you've made the choice. To leave it on the table. Um, if you if you delete data, that's data processing. So any anything you do at all with data is data processing. A data processor is essentially um, a vendor, is the entity that takes direction, does not act independently, but takes direction and instruction and must abide by the instructions of the data controller. Um, and a data subject is the individual.
3: Since we're in an academic setting, I think that uh, we'll keep it controversial. I mean, I'd like to introduce kind of a counterpoint on GDPR. So if you think about the GDPR, essentially it's, the, in its essence, it's a law that applies globally to all sorts of data processing, right? And then it says you can't process data, you can't touch it, put it on the table, whatever you can do it, unless there's a reason, you have a basis to do it. And then basis can be something like, it's necessary to uh, complete a contract, right? or it's necessary to comply with the legal requirement or the individual provides consent. So far, reasonable. As these things get interpreted, the GDPR, and if you look into it deeper, introduces a lot of dead ends into business practices because let's say I just said necessary for compliance with legal requirements. Now the GDPR has a global application because of how it applies. Let's say a company that's based in Europe uh, has to treat all of the data processes, including in the United States, Europe, uh, Asia in accordance with GDPR, right? So then you think about, oh, they can do it if it's necessary to comply with legal requirements. Not the case, because the legal requirements in that provision only refer to European legal requirements, for example, it could be interpreted that way. So what does that mean? It means that let's say a company that's based in the United Kingdom, that, whose business has been to run background checks globally, background checks, let's say, for the investor, for uh, fund managers, right, is suddenly faced with a situation where uh, potentially it needs to obtain consent of uh, um, these fund managers, whatever, in the United States. Now, there are other companies that provide that service, and in these circumstances, I'm not going to go into details, consent of uh, those individuals in the United States is not required. Now if you think about it, you have to get consent. It's very complicated. It affects the business model. Suddenly this company is a huge business disadvantage for no apparent reason. And maybe in Europe there's a legal requirement to, or, to go around like fiduciary obligations, whatever specific to Europe or statutory to go around the consent requirement. But the United States, if you follow their letter of the law, it's not gonna work because the U- European legal requirement doesn't apply and they provide business, let's say services to US customers. So, and there are many dead ends like that. It can, uh, looking at the GDPR, uh, you could say that if you have a fraud prevention application, let's say you go to McDonald's, try to pay um, for a burger uh, using your credit card, and you say you try to do it in Germany, that's somehow the law could in- interpret it uh, to require you to get the consent from the criminal who's trying to use uh, the app to pay for the burger so that you could process the criminal's data for your uh AI enabled fraud prevention applications. That's what the GDPR could be interpreted. And then when you kind of try to apply it, and you might be talking to German lawyers, they're perfectly fine with that application. They're not surprised that it works like that. Now you think, how how is it possible that businesses operate in Europe in this environment? Because in Europe, obviously the the European Protection Directive has been around since 1995, right? And the uh, GDPR is just a delta, it's not, it's kind of an iteration or it's an evolution except for enforcement penalties? Well, the answer is that uh, they, they, they didn't. So although this law has existed, it's very strict, it hasn't been taken seriously in Europe. So I think that, uh, you know, sort of the counterpoint to this, if you look at uh, the regimes, the orthodoxy, that we talk about, is that GDPR is very strict, and Europe is very strict on privacy. It certainly is very strict on paper, but in terms of compliance, I think that the United States regime with its overlapping laws and enforcement and uh, the state enforcement, state AG enforcement and uh, private right of action enforcement and public shaming that goes on here with the Advocacy Association, the Federal Trade Commission has created a much more robust regime for privacy protections. So when you're, and and Lisa's practice and my practice is global, so sometimes when you have, uh, let's say, a European company, a well-known name, that is entering the U.S. market, They will be completely oblivious to any privacy requirements. They never thought about it. They had data. They sold it to third parties without having any rights to it. They texted people without consent. They were in Germany or in Switzerland, and they never thought about it for a second that was going to be a problem. The only time, first time they hear that it's a problem, is when they tried to enter the U.S. market. So you've got the disconnect. That's interesting. That you've got the kind of the GDPR, and it's very strict, and it's affecting U.S. companies. Uh, very significantly, but it remains to be seen how it's gonna kind of shake
2: out. I, I do wanna get metadata in on this to find out their views on GDPR. Before I do, um, Boris and Lisa, I mean, Boris, your account is a, a realist account, but it's a, an account that suggests that maybe there, there are ways that this could have been thought through a little bit. But apart from that, what advice do you give in anticipation of enforcement, right? So we, we haven't yet talked about the enforcement mechanisms, but part of your advice must uh, presumably is addressed to the likelihood of being caught in 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 an enforcement action. So what do you, and and since things are so uneven, first, what are the enforcement mechanisms? And second, what do you advise in such a complicated environment? You know, for a generic generic, um, client. Yeah, go ahead. All
4: right, um, so yeah, so, so, just, I just want to hit on two other buckets. I talked about harmonisation, increased obligations. Third bucket, and Boris um, talked about this, so I don't need to. Is strengthened rights for <coughs> individuals, so rights of access, uh, right to be forgotten, right of, of amendment, right of portability of your data. Um, and the fourth is increased enforcement, and that you know that really is is very much um, uh, consistent with Boris's comments in that. Um, there were penalties under the Data Protection Directive, but they were small. Just to give you a sense of it, Equifax was fined yesterday, £500,000 for its breach. That is the maximum that it was permitted that that the UK Information Commissioner's Office was allowed to fine an entity. So, £500,000. Now, you know that's not it's not gigantic for a company like Equifax, um, but they were at the a- absolute upper limit. Now, under the GDPR the maximum fines could be 4% of global revenues. So if you think about that number, you take any company, any t- company in the, in the Fortune 500, and attach 4% of global revenues to it, it is a staggeringly large number. So that's the number that a couple of years ago when we were starting on this compliance uh, tear because it was really a, an, an, an incredibly wild two years from the time the GDPR was finalized to the time uh, the, effect, the compliance deadline came into, into effect. Um, that's what got the attention of boards and senior management was that 4% um, potential fine. and? the potential for private rights of action. Now, I don't expect we're gonna see very many of those in Europe. They just don't do that there, we do it here. Um, and that actually does play a large role in our, our compliance uh, here. As, as Boris said, we, you know we have, there are lots of ways to enforce in the United States. Regulatory actions are only one of them. There, it's really all about regulatory actions more than private rights of action, although we have seen a couple of them already under the GDPR, some, some very significant ones. Uh, but but it is that 4% fine that makes people's hair stand on end. And so as a result of that, I think we are seeing companies getting much more religion. I mean, over the last two years, we we've worked with many, many companies who are really working extremely hard to comply with every jot and tittle. Um, they're not ignoring, they cannot afford to ignore and they, they at least have to show that they've made best efforts to, uh, to move forward with compliance.
3: That's what you said last I think is, the, is uh, kind of the essence of it B- because you know the GDPR was introduced in Europe into a system that did not have a robust enforcement. And uh, it, it's essentially a bomb because one, one example where it's kind of showing its ugly head in a way is in the clinical trial space, right? So in the clinical trial space, clinical trial consents, which is kind of when you participate in a trial, you consent to it. They're approved by um, an ethics board in every country. Every country has a different one. And they've tried to change the process and change the forms to comply with the GDPR. And every country has its own process. Ostensibly, the GDPR is supposed to provide a uniform outcome, but that's not happening. And they're also very confused about what the GDPR is and what it means. The uh, flip side of it is that, you know, it's so complicated in a way, and there's so many of these dead ends, and there's so many ways to interpret it, that if you take a reasonable position in interpreting it, and reasonable meaning best effort, middle of the pack, it's gonna be hard for a regulator to say that you made a mistake. I mean, they might send you a letter and say like, don't do it or whatever, but to take an enforcement action if you're middle of the pack, be, I think it'd be hard. So in terms of compliance, that's the typical path that we that clients wanna take and we agree and we suggest that, is you wanna be middle, middle of the pack, make the best effort, uh, make sure you're reasonably interpreting the requirements, not in any sort of egregious way, not near the line, and go with that. Eventually, hopefully, maybe, we don't know, there will be more enforcement and more interpretation, and then there will emerge sort of a practice, maybe similar to what we have in the United States, with uh, precedent uh, that will help advise better. But for now, it's kind of middle of the road.
2: Andrew and Anthony, are you in the middle of the pack? <laughs>
1: We're leading regards- the pack, of course. Okay. <laughs>
2: um, how does how, say a word or two about how the GDPR has impacted your your what you do, um, if, if if you could?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I'd say that. A fair statement of our position is, is boxed in, right? Because on the one hand, when you're an attorney for a company, you know, you're there to advise on what are the risks, what are the sort of likelihood magnitudes of those risks, and enable your business people to make decisions that are gonna move the business forward. And so if you walk into a boardroom with your own hair on end and say four percent just walking out the door, assume that now, and now let's try to work it down. Um, That's not, you know, that's not really an honest broker that's giving advice for your client, right? So on the one hand, you're trying to square up business requirements with legal requirements. You're trying to hit that, you know, what would a reasonable regulator think? What would a reasonable court think? Then on the other side are our clients who audit us and who handle some of the most um, high value and high investment level data on earth. You know, you spend a billion dollars to make a medicine. You make a ten billion dollars on the other side. Those numbers have Bs in them. You're not gonna, um, you're not gonna take any chances when it comes to picking a vendor to handle the data. And so, we have to be ready for the most skeptical interpretation of the law to walk in the door, and we have to be ready for the most liberal interpretation when we're making business decisions. It, it, it's a position that's. Um, really interesting I mean it's a very uh, very interesting time to be a privacy attorney because we're on this new frontier of what how will the law be interpreted in the future uh, but certainly when it comes to turning those legal requirements into actual business decisions um, it's it's quite challenging
5: I'll, I'll add to that going back before October of 2015, October 2015 is when uh, the Safe Harbor regime, people have heard of Privacy Shield before Privacy Shield, there was Safe Harbor. This was an agreement between the European Commission and the US DOJ or FTC. Uh, Commerce, Commerce. Commerce, thank you, DOC. um, That Europeans data, if you're a European and your data had to come to the US for some reason, I don't know, because you're buying something on amazon.com or any other U.S.-based server, that that was okay for your personal data uh, to come to the U.S. Any company who signed up in a pretty light sign-up process uh, was was good, and it was kind of light, and you had to do some things, nothing too too heavy. So that regime got invalidated due to a loss lawsuit by an enterprising uh, enterprising law student from Austria, and then all of a sudden privacy became. Imp- much more attention was paid to it by companies like ours. It used to be, I will not say check the box, it was more than that, but it wasn't a freestanding department that was officially delegated by the board of directors with annual reporting, executive oversight, resources, and the whole nine yards that go into a governance program and everything else, and lots of spend on outside lawyers and outside accountants. So when you say, Boris, about, you know, The law is ambiguous and has lots of dead ends. Absolutely, we could talk about so many of them that are interesting, so long as you take a reasonable approach. That's also true, but that reasonable approach has to have been written down ahead of time in a thoughtful way that you can demonstrate, yes, we're aware of this requirement, we thought about it and we took this position as a response. And that is a very big exercise to do across forget about our particular line of business, but any U.S. company that might have employees in Europe and might want a centralized human resources data system and so on and so forth. So um, I'm not complaining, I'm just pointing out the scope and the implications are also very procedural. And then I think there's a lot interesting, I'll say one last thing, just the definition of a data controller is the one who decides uh, the purpose and means of what we are going to do with your data. And there are lots of companies like ours who are really just data processors. Uh, Workday, Salesforce, NetSuite, and so on. Um, do you mean that the customer then, does the GDPR trying to say that the customer could go to Workday and say, you know what, we really don't like servers anymore. We want you to just start doing things on Excel sheets or, better yet, pieces of paper. We'll feel a little safer around that. No, of course not. So actually, you, you start to have to contract around what does it mean, customer, that, uh, who is the controller, that you are um, agreeing that our services contract that says, by the way, we're going to use servers and they're going to be protected and so on, is your final instruction on what the purpose and means of the processing is. So I know we kind of talked about this last night, but I wanted to set that up as one of the ways in which the law says one thing and then commercial contracts have to start to not contradict that, but to get a meeting of the minds around how we're going to together meet the requirements.
2: Well, I, as, as you know, I think this is where some of the most interesting issues are. But before we go there, um, Andrew, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the um, safe harbor. Um, maybe we'll just say a word about that, and then and then the other piece is what's happening in the U.S. We've been talking a lot about Europe, um, so let's spend a little bit of time on that, and then we can talk about the where the rubber meets the road um, in B two B transactions and in internal um, handling of, of of data. So, um, Lisa, can you say a word about the safe harbor and where we are? I mean, this is changed over the past few years. Yeah,
4: where we are. So um, you are not allowed to transfer data from the EU, actually the broader EEA, which includes Liechtenstein, Iceland, and Norway, and Switzerland, which is not part of the EEA, um, outside of the European Union, um, unless you have, uh, unless you are transferring the data to a, a jurisdiction or a company that is considered to have adequate protections in place. Um, as a company, you, you can either be in a country that is deemed to have adequate data protection laws in place, like uh, Israel is deemed adequate, New Zealand is deemed adequate, Canada is as well. There, but there are very few countries, Argentina, Uruguay, the Isle of Man, Jersey, Guernsey, Faroe Islands. I mean, you can see this, is, it's a little absurd. Um, there are really very few countries. We are not considered adequate in the United States. We do not have an adequacy ruling. Uh, because we have this sectoral regime that makes sense to no one but us. Um, So we are not allowed to transfer data, and that also means accessing data. So if I'm sitting in New York and I'm accessing data on a server in Paris, there has to be a legal mechanism in place in order to allow me to do that legally. So the United States in 2000, uh, the Department of Commerce and the European Commission uh, negotiated and met had a meeting of minds around the what was known as the Safe Harbor at the time, which uh, imposed seven key principles on companies that would agree to impose those principles on the data that they get from Europe and abide by those principles. With the ultimate enforcement hook given to the fair, to the Federal Trade Commission, who could bring an action against the company for not abiding by its representations. That it abides by these seven principles. Um, and there were a number of, of uh, enforcement actions by the FTC under the safe harbor. An enterprising fellow named Max Schrams, um, who uh, we just. The Austrian the student. The Austrian student. Uh, decided as a. Uh, as, uh, he, he came here, he went to uh, a university, I think for a year or a semester in, in, Santa, in, in California, Santa Clara, and he. Uh, Heard somebody from Facebook speak, and he just went on this sort of rampage around privacy. This, This really triggered him. And he brought an action that went all the way up to the European Court of Justice, unbelievably, and he prevailed. The European Court of Justice, that moment, just blew away the safe harbor. Following, uh, and there had already been negotiation to evolve the safe harbor, because like the data protection directive, it needed safe harbor needed to evolve as well. So there had been some discussion that was really expedited at that moment in time. And then finally, we ended up the following summer, this was in October of 2015, we ended up the following summer with the privacy shield um, which is the next iteration of the safe harbor. The Privacy Shield also has seven principles. Um, it's, it is a, um, an enhanced version of, of the safe harbor, and it's pretty, pretty darn serious in its um, mandates. And there are now, I think at last count, there were well over 2,000 companies that used the privacy shield as, as, it, as their data transfer mechanism. Um, there has been some enforcement already uh, by the FTC, and I'll just note you know, as a matter of, this is a very US-centric position, uh, but one of the other ways of transferring data is to sign uh, what are known as model clauses or model contracts or standard contractual clauses. These are fixed contractual agreements um, as between the data exporter in Europe and the data importer anywhere else around the world, and essentially requires the data importer to abide by European-style principles in protecting that data. Um, I don't know, and Boris, you may, but I don't know of a single enforcement action uh, under uh, challenging a company's compliance with model clauses, Um, but there have been many scores, I would say, of enforcement actions by the FTC vis-a-vis the Safe Harbor and then Privacy Shield. So that again, U.S. U.S. centric position. It you know it annoys me that the European Commission came out with this set of model clauses, and this is what is considered to be deeply protected. And that now they are being challenged. Max Schrems also brought an action, and that's making its way up. It should probably probably be a year that uh, this will be decided.
2: Briefly, could you say a word about the substance of some of these model clauses? I mean, how are they I, there's a lot you can say about them, but but. I mean, are they significantly different from what the the, the terms of the uh, European Commission or the European Court of Justice has said about privacy protection? Let
3: me let me just say about the one thing about the safe harbor. So, as Lisa mentioned, the Privacy Shield is very close to safe harbor. You could almost say it's a carbon copy, right? It's very close. But what the invalidation of the the way the sort of the landscape changed is that it. Over the years, after the safe harbor was adopted, you always heard complaints in Europe from regulators that they didn't like the safe harbor because they viewed, um, it's a self-certification program, so the arguments from regulators were, um, well, you can just check the box on the, Department of Commerce website and be done with it, and you try to explain to them that's not really how it works in the United States for legitimate players because of other pressures, you know, compliance, the culture of compliance, capital markets that drive uh, that audits, whatever. That's how they viewed it. They invalidated safe harbor, came the privacy shield, but now it's much harder to operate in the. So the idea of the privacy shield, let me just say that. Mm -hmm. So is that you certify to this program, right, and that gives you as a recipient in the United States the right to receive data from Europe. With model clauses, model clauses is a contract. So essentially, if you have business customers in Europe, every time you've got an engagement, you have to sign those model clauses, which are more more onerous generally. So it's easier to do business. But now, if you try to do business and you tell your business customer that, well, we're Privacy Shield certified, don't worry about it, oftentimes they'll say like, well, no, come on. Uh, we We don't accept the Privacy Shield because whatever, it'll be invalidated. Let's go, we want model clauses. Now it's irrational, as you said, because model clauses are also being challenged, but it it basically destroyed that um, confidence that businesses had. Yes, I'm not aware of any enforcement with model clauses. I think that they're very, uh, I mean, going through them, we can talk about the requirements, but they're very European in the sense that Europe generally is like much less litigious, right? So when contracts are written in Europe, they're not as precise or thought through as contracts in the United States that you know might be litigated. And the model clauses reflect that. They have sort of all sorts of requirements, uh, pass through liability for processors, um, essentially trying to tra- have the data. So if the privacy shield or safe harbor is a subset, these seven principles, let's think about them as GDPR very light or European privacy directive very light, uh, the uh, model clauses are much heavier. They uh, uh, more closely track those requirements right but whether anyone complies with them they're often viewed as oh this is just a piece of paper sign it and be done and so if you sometimes you get that perspective that the privacy shield you make a commitment it's a public commitment you make it on your website you certify you're subject to enforcement model clauses are more onerous, but it's just paper nobody knows it doesn't exist so it's not signed. So that the, it, it, I agree, it makes uh, <laughs> you know the Privacy Shield is a much stronger mechanism. And if you in Europe, if you're truly thinking about transparency and protection of rights, you would be all in for Privacy Shield or Safe Harbor, and not for model clauses. But model clauses are preferred or BCRs. So that's you know. But that it, again, you're dealing with a completely different legal system. If you're talking about continental and different approach to uh, law, so it's, it shouldn't be surprising. So let's that it's let's talk
2: about U.S. Um, um, a little bit here. There is, as you've heard, no comprehensive federal um, data protection statute. We have a sectoral approach, is what Lisa's and Boris have told us. Um, But there has emerged in the past few months um, a substantial effort by California to protect data protection, or to protect um, user data. Um, The California Consumer Protection Act goes as far as any statute, as I understand it, to do that. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about Europe. There are move- There's movement afoot here. Let's start with the CCPA and then maybe a word about potential federal regulation. And then after, now that we, we, have, we have laid the groundwork, um, we're gonna see how at least one company implements them. So maybe a word on the CCPA.
3: So CCPA is the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. To talk about that, I need my notes. So this is, this is interesting, it's unique to California because California has this direct democracy system where apparently, and I was as surprised as anyone would be, you can get, on the, you can get a bill on the ballot. And by bill, I don't mean should we pay more in taxes, but like a 20-page law that would be really hard to interpret, put it on the bill, put on the vote, and it could um, become law, so it's unique. Obviously, there's been, there hasn't been any movement on privacy legislation at state or federal level in the past, because there are a lot of industry, opposed industry interests and we're not ready to decide whether we're gonna operate on globally on opt-in or opt-out regime. And, but here in California that was changed because there was somebody who was willing to spend $2 million, put the measure on the ballot and changed that landscape. Now that was done and, and then in response to get that bill off the ballot, the legislature passed a version of this California law which we'll talk about in a second. They're now, and we'll talk about sort of the federal impact in other states, it's important to, to realize that this is not like breach laws, where California passed a breach law, I think it's 2000, and every state passed it over some years, and so there are copycat state laws. Here, it's less likely because other states don't have this direct democracy system. They can't force a legislature to pass a law, so they still continue to face kind of the same obstacles it's not as likely that there would be copycat laws, although certainly there's federal concern. Now, uh, and the CCPA itself is just a starting point. It doesn't go into effect, I think, until January 2020, and then enforcement could be delayed another six months by the the, uh, California AG. And there are continuous amendments um, that 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 have already happened and that will continue to happen to the law. So one of the amendments, for example, is to exclude clinical trial data from uh, the scope of the law. So there's a lot of industry jockeying to change that law, so whatever we're talking about now is probably gonna be very different as uh, we move forward. But in, its, in principle, uh, the California law is uh, essentially a national law. So if the, the threshold for its application is, for businesses that have gross revenues, more than 25 million, which is a pittance, nothing, obtain personal data of 50,000 or more California residents, also nothing, or derive 50% or more annual revenue from selling California residents PI. Effectively, that's or, right? So effectively, that will um, cover most um, significant businesses in the United States and it will have a national application. And then that law um, establishes, so basically what it does is that um, it enhances the disclosures to which individuals are entitled through privacy policies or access requests. You have many more rights, and I, I don't think that we have time to go through all of that. Um, and it it gives individuals much more control over their data. So one example that's very specific and indifferent, and it's, um, is that, um, uh, well, in part this law is like, almost, it seems to be designed to tank the data brokerage industry. But uh, you know, one of the things that, one of the requirements is that if the data is sold, individuals have the right to opt out from the sale of their data to third parties for their own purposes. And the term "sale" is very broadly interpreted, and it's interpreted to making data available to everyone else. And this, this whole there's a lot of focus about on selling data and how businesses sell data and how it's bad and how individuals should have control over it. I will just note, just make one note. You know, when when um, Facebook, when you see advertising on Facebook, I mean when you see advertising on Facebook, in some ways, your data is not sold to uh, the, let's say, Ford Motor Company. I mean, they, if you go and join Ford's fan page on Facebook, your data will go to Ford. But if you're just getting contextual advertising, your data is not sold. Facebook makes its audiences and demographics available, custom audiences, to advertisers. So, see, if I'm Ford, I'm going say, oh, I wanna advertise to people in this category, or this category, if Facebook says, okay, give me your stuff, I will, sh- I will, um, uh, deliver it. Many businesses operate in that way, and so potentially they couldn't be covered. So it's kind of misconception about how the internet works. However, if you think about online tracking and behavioral advertising, right, you are tracked online. Let's say CNN allows somebody to, when you visit, to put a cookie on your computer, or use other technology, and then you're tracked across the web over time by advertising networks, and that information can be used for online advertising or for building out your profile to append, exchange other databases. So this California law looks to kind of regulate that whole space, that's one of the big things where the sale of data, would individuals would have a choice, sale of data and brokers, data brokers, couldn't necessarily resell that data or sell that data without giving individuals notice and meaningful choice. So it it has some good principles, uh, good ideas, but it's not necessarily, it's gonna potentially tank significant sectors of the industry. We'll talk about kind of the federal response. There's a lot of headwind for that uh, law and how it's going to move forward.
2: So, I, I will go to the federal response towards the end. I want to bring in the audience too, but before we do, it's important, I think, well, first to recognize that these reforms are GDPR and the California statute, are full employment programs for privacy lawyers. Um, but apart from that, um, we've heard, we've laid the groundwork, right? Um, what does a firm with this context, a company, this context, do? To manage data internally um, and in its transactions with other businesses, so you've um, you and metadata you guys have identified governance plans as important. What can you tell us about how you, in this context, manage user data?
1: So I think one important aspect of how we manage data as a company is. Uh, Internal policies and procedures around um, when data leaves an environment, uh, and, by, and by environment I mean secure servers, uh, products, and things like that, where we've promised our customers, you know, this environment has a certain level of security, has certain privacy controls. When data leaves that environment, we need policies and procedures in place to make sure that we are accountable. So even though I may, you know, I may trust and work with our engineers. That doesn't mean that I can just sort of convince my customer that um, that data is not going to walk out the door. And with it, either um, impose some sort of privacy related fine on them or you know, lose proprietary value associated with that data. And so, some internal policies and procedures, which is in some ways a very new concept for, for you know, a tech company to think through. So a policy and procedure around ask, you know, being accountable for where data is going, who has access to it, how long they need that copy, and when they're going to get rid of it so that we have as few authoritative copies of data as possible. This is, uh, you know, In some ways, this is the, the heart and soul of data governance because it gives you the ability to speak authoritatively about where data is and how it's being protected. But when you think of the sort of fast-paced world of working in a software company, it's a completely new concept. And so, working and socializing cross-functionally, working with both leaders and everyday engineers, getting a, a culture and inculcating sensitivity around how data is being handled—that's, um, to me, you know, sort of the essence of what metadata does to make sure these these privacy regulations have a real life impact on how the company operates.
2: Um, so I'm gonna open the floor to questions. I have other questions and I will pose them to the panel, but I think it's time to bring the audience into here with, with questions for our great, our great panelists. There has been talk of federal regulation, federal statute. Um, we do not, as we've heard, have a comprehensive omnibus federal statute. And um, Boris, you've hinted at why that might be the case. I would love to hear all of you say a word or two about what you think such, if such a statute were to occur, were to happen, what, what should it say? What should it do?
1: I mean, I'll start off, and this is a bit of my prior life as an outside counsel for data security and breach issues. We need one data breach regime for the country. Um, it, it, you know, it is, it's been a full employment act for, for privacy attorneys, that's true. But um, putting yourself crosswise, and there are a couple key aspects that I think are very important for a breach notification law that's nationwide. One is a unified regime for law enforcement notification. It's a very big aspect, especially in the days we live in now of, you know, transnational cyber crimes and espionage. That you know we have a single, reliable law enforcement agency that we can report these kinds of crimes to instead of the patchwork of jurisdiction we've been working with so far.
2: Lisa, you had identified principles that in your review of the hundreds of statutes that apply to clients, I imagine you would envision that sort of thing implemented in this federal statute, or are there reasons for why we wouldn't?
4: Let's start with the likelihood. <laughs> you know, look, we're in it, we're in an era where um, our um, federal Congress is completely paralyzed, um, which is why the states are stepping up to the plate. I just wanna give you a, um, I, I, I was contemplating this question last night and I, I wrote down all the efforts that, uh, that I know of and I'm sure you guys know of more. Um, there is a, an effort by the NTIA, which is part of the Department of Commerce um, to implement high-level privacy principles. A parallel effort by NIST, also part of the Department of Commerce, Commerce to implement uh, a privacy assessment framework. Um, There is a Senate Commerce Committee effort to uh, draft an online privacy bill. Um, There is an effort by the Senate Commerce Committee Chair to draft a privacy bill. This is different from what the four bipartisan members are drafting. There is a US Chamber of Commerce uh, document that just came out, set of privacy principles. Uh, The Internet Association just came out with a set of privacy principles. Um, ALI uh, came out with a, a pretty, Folsom, uh law, privacy law um, uh, model uh, law, um, and I just had a conversation with somebody who is from the and I don't know what the name of this organization is, but the the folks who do the state UCC type of laws, uh, and he said we're thinking of doing privacy. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So, oh my goodness, um, you know there are there are so many efforts um, now in this country. There is no question that post-Cambridge Analytica, were are in a different place, and that was that was really um, a line in the sand. It's when you know we used to say, and I think we truly believed that, yeah, everybody knows what's what's happening with their own data. You know, we it's not a surprise to anybody that their data is being uh, sold and there's a, there's a val- data has value and, and we're getting value in return by using the internet for free. Um, so there's this exchange and we get it, we all get it. That's, that just was wrong, um, I, I at least was dead, dead wrong about that. I think we, we as, a, as a society did not understand until Cambridge Analytica, um, really what was happening with our data. And that's why there's this sea change. So that has been the the trigger for all of these efforts. Now California, now the the ballot initiative was actually in the works for a few years. It was not brand new, Uh, but boy was it, you know, there was this, Expedited move, and by the way, this is a law that passed in seven days. The bill dropped on um, June 21st; it was passed on June 28th. So, as with any law that is passed in seven days, it is deeply flawed. There's already been one set of amendments at the end of August. There will be, uh, there will be more. I'm not sure how su- substantive they will be. Um, I've just said way too much.
2: <laughs> yeah, Boris. And then I see a
3: question. Sure. I, I think that uh, you know of the organizations that Lisa mentioned. Two in particular, um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Internet Association, it's interesting that in the past they've opposed all uh, privacy laws or legislating privacy and now they both support it because of course they want, what they want is, uh, and that's I think reasonable, is that, is they want federal law that's reasonable that would preempt the California law, bo- both on the privacy end and on uh, breach response or establish one breach response standard. So I agree, the kind of breach response is a cottage industry. Uh, the uh, departure points of some of these efforts is basically taking the FTC, Federal Trade Commission Enforcement Actions that you know, have been around since uh, 2000 or before, and there's a body of law on, on consent decrees, and um, the FTC has put out a lot of guidance, which in effect represents um, the best business practices that companies in the US already follow. So taking that and codifying that, so you know, transparency and fairness, Primarily, working around the principles of transparency and fairness, transparency and fairness is what probably would work and would find um, would be acceptable by businesses. I mean, but even that effort would run into some headwind because, you know, to the extent you think about um, big data and data brokerage, there's today there's a disconnect. Let's say one example between the FTC and the advertising industry and what it what it means to use personal data for advertising. So to the extent that the FTC's view today is that if somebody's tracking you online or you deserve a right to opt out or to opt out of behavioral advertising, there are sectors of the industry that don't necessarily view it that way. So it, there's there's gonna be resistance, but federal effort might be necessary to counter what happened in California because it's a state law, but it will have, it's essentially uh, will have a global impact, not just in the US. Lisa.
4: Yeah, just very quickly to add on to Boris's comments. the um, this is a huge challenge, it's really, really hard. And and I just wanna give one example of why. Notice and consent, I said notice and consent is a bedrock earlier of, of every privacy regime. That is absolutely true. How in the world do you give notice and how in the world do you get consent or give any kind of choice when we're now in an era of, of artificial intelligence, when we have to feed Machines, huge amounts of data for the for the machines to learn, and we don't know how that data is ultimately going to be used, and how it's going to be used to train machines. How do you give notice and choice? And that's just one very, very small example of why this is so hard.
3: Before, since we can I just add, yeah. you know, this um, the AI example is also great on GDPR because GDPR, I think, with AI or automated processing. Requires the control to be able to explain the logic of the decision, but one of the features of the AI, the, the machine learning, is that they learn. Right? They make a decision. The decision is right, but you can't explain the thought process that went through with it. So that's you know companies are struggling. That's one of the one of the big issues with AI as well.
2: Well, the, the so really- so maybe this means the notice and consent um, form as. prevalent as it is, is not the way to proceed. And by the way, this is not the first time people have leveled a critique to the notice and consent regime, at least because Joel Reidenberg, who teaches here, um, and others have been consistently um, concerned that notice is inadequate, at least because people don't read the entire notice, or it's written in language uh, that is opaque. I mean, why don't we just dispense with notice and consent?
4: (laughs) You should ask Paula, because she's truly the expert on this. But look, um, Joel and I actually spoke uh, in, in Jerusalem about, oh, I don't know, Paula, was it eight years ago, nine years ago? At the Data Protection 2001 Data Protection Commissioner's Conference on this very topic of, of notice and consent, and um, so it has been it has been an issue. It is so hard. Um, we do need to think about a more nuanced approach. But when I think about notice and consent, I think more about data governance. So coming full circle, companies need to be responsible. We've talked in great at great length um, about accountability and companies being accountable. For their data use, so we need to think about this this larger framework for entities and how they're going to use data in a responsible manner. Notice is important, and I think it is it is it is absolutely critical for, for entities to um, let their the users, customers, um, whatever the the consumer base is. Um, Let them know about how they're going to use data generally. We just can't list every jot and tittle about how we're going to use data, but we need to be responsible in our data use. So
5: one thought on the notice of consent
4: um,
5: is I have heard out of the mouth of a European authority in Brussels at a data protection meeting the following sentence, oh, you don't need to get consent to anonymize uh, an individual's data. Anonymization is a technique, it's not a purpose. And of course, once data is anonymized, it's no longer personal data. It can't be subject to data protection laws. If that's really true under the law, and to the extent that industries like ad tech really don't need to maintain data about you in an identifiable form, and that's a big question. There's a whole cottage industry around data analytics and what You know, if I have two pieces of data on you or three pieces, could I identify you? But if we were to assume, yeah, you're no longer identifiable and that data still had some value, uh, enough to run ad tech, enough to surface ads because you're part of a market segment, um, then I would argue that you can still have notice and consent um, but the law would clearly say that you don't have to consent to such uses. Now this is a lot of practical considerations that would solve a lot of industry problems, It would solve a lot of academic uh, scientific research problems.
3: I think it, it, the um, the regime, I guess the way I think about it is notice and choice rather than notice and consent. But the FTC has, and I'm sure Paul is gonna be talking about it, but the FTC recognizes the complexity of it as the kind of trying to write out the internet on paper, That there are a lot of uses of data that are within the consumer's expectations. I'm sure these expectations are evolving. And for those you probably don't need notice or choice, but it's the uses that are surprising to the consumer that are probably the primary focus of that effort. But, uh, you know, and Andrew raised a whole new, like that could be a whole new topic about anonymous.
2: A provocative and interesting one to discuss. I mean, the you know, Lisa, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica as having, you know, Triggered a something of a um, a wake up call, right? So you know many of us are now woke. Although I think some of us were already woke, but many more are woke um, uh, on this. And you know, so so Andrew um, uh, makes the point about de, de- anonymization um, as transforming the problem because it's become. The, the user's information has been flattened out and whether it be aggregated or not um, uh, so that it can't be the the user can't be identified One question is is there still a harm right' I'm, I'm not I'm not going to pretend to answer it now but is there still a harm when user information is collected and distributed um, without the user's knowledge or notice uh, that's a it's a question
5: yeah I think there's a view and perhaps a right one, one that we just talked about. There's a news article came out yesterday about Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, and there's a lot of angles on this story. One is you know, nonprofit law and corporate governance. But if it's true that the tissue samples of these patients was completely anonymized, absolutely no way to track it back to them. If that's true, Is it a problem or not that this uh, tech AI startup company could profit huge sums of money and the patients whose samples those were over the last 60 years never got a dime? It's legal probably because it's anonymous. But just in terms of ownership of data, I think that's a real underlying question and I think expectations have changed around that and the watershed example that I know of is the Henrietta case in terms of that was absolutely wrong and the expectations from whenever that was 60 years ago are not our expectations now. In terms of ownership of my own data, whether it can be identified to me or not.
2: So there could be a whole other panel discussion on owner ownership of data, um, but we're not gonna go there just now. Um, unless there are any other questions, I think I can say that we've had a really great conversation. I'm grateful to the panelists. Please join me in thanking this panel.
0: The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Patterson. Our Volume 29 Editor-in-Chief is Jeffrey Greenway. Our Magic Editor is Michael Rivera. Special thanks to Symposium Editor, Chloe Curtis, and a sincere thank you to all our panelists and moderators, and to everyone at IPLJ for making this symposium possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can also follow us at our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ForumIPLJ. You can visit our website at forumiplj.org for daily content. I am your online editor, Patrick O. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.